Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's Insight Assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. I'm Constance Grady. I write for Vox about books and culture, and today I'm sitting in for Sean Illing. It's hard to remember what a weird book The Iliad by Homer is. It's so old and it's so foundational to Western culture that it kind of just seems like a fact. Oh yeah, one of our most revered works of literature is a long poem about a bunch of men violently murdering each other over who gets to own what sex slave. That's normal, right? The Iliad is the first one of the Homeric poems. The other is the Odyssey. Even for Greek literature, the Iliad is bizarre. Mostly, it's about Achilles getting offended that one of the Greek generals confiscated a slave girl of his, and he refuses to fight because of it. And then there are long descriptions of the rest of the Greek army going off and fighting battles without him. It's a poem about petty, angry men and the violence they do to each other. And it's the basis for the 3,000 years of literature that has come after it. Every battle scene, every tragic death, every depiction of rage and grief and humans being awful to each other. The Iliad is at the bottom of everything. I'm Constance Grady, and this is The Gray Area. My guest today is Emily Wilson. Emily is a classics professor at Penn. In 2017, she published a celebrated new translation of The Odyssey. Earlier this year, she followed it up with a translation of, you guessed it, The Iliad. Emily's translations are straightforward and vivid and alive. They let you feel the strangeness of this alien culture from 3,000 years ago. I wanted to talk with her about the parts of the Iliad that feel very alive and urgent, and the parts that feel very far away. I really want to know, why does the Iliad last? Emily Wilson, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. So Emily, tell me what draws you to translating these ancient texts. 
Um, so I love these ancient texts, and I want them to be available to new readers and available to readers who may have read them before in different translations in a different way. One of the big things that I wanted to do was to create very regular metrical translations to honor the musicality and rhythm of the original and the way that in antiquity, the Homeric epics, as well as ancient tragedy, were performed out loud, experienced out loud. So I want to create read-aloudable translations. And your translation of the Odyssey in 2017 got a lot more mainstream attention than classical translations usually do. So why do you think that is? Yeah, it's, I mean, I feel very lucky that it got so much attention. I mean, I think the Robert Fagel's translations also got pretty widely reviewed. I mean, it's not that it's never happened before that a translation of Homer has sort of seemed like this might change things in terms of how does the general public read Homer. I mean, I think one thing was the factoid, which isn't really all that much to do with me, of I was the first woman to publish an Anglo Anglophone translation of the Odyssey, which I think is a, is more something about the state of translation of ancient texts and its gendering and its sort of the, the particular mutations of that than it is about me. I think, it, but I think it's a worthwhile thing to talk about, even though it wasn't central to my work. Yeah, and since then you've sometimes talked about that idea as sort of a, a distraction. This focus on your status as the first woman translator of the Odyssey into English. So why, what makes you feel that it's a distraction? I mean, I don't usually spend much time thinking about my gender during my average workday. I mean, I spend quite a lot of time thinking about terms for gender within the Homeric poems or within ancient tragedy when I'm translating tragedies. Um, and I think the Homeric poems are pretty interesting in their representations of gender. In the Iliad, for instance, there's a whole cluster of terms that suggest excessive masculinity um, and then also terms that suggest courage, but bleeding into this could be a rash, destructive kind of courage. And there are words like agenoria, which is cognate with the word for man, anir. So sort of wrestling with how do I translate that? How do I represent the ways that the poem itself sees masculinity as sometimes a problem. But that isn't about whatever gender identity I may be inhabiting. It's about the way the poem is quite complicated in its representations of gender. And similarly, I find the, the Homeric poems fascinating in how they are intelligently intersectional about gender, that they don't sort of equate all female characters are more disempowered than all male characters. Instead, there are very, very powerful divine goddess characters, and there are also very much lacking in power male mortal characters. So it's, it, I, I, li I like that they're complicated about it. They're not that, unlike the headline writers, they sort of acknowledge that being female, being male, there's a lot to say about that, and it's not a, it can't be summed up in a headline. So the Odyssey is this big hit in 2017, and then you sit down to start translating the Iliad. Did you feel um, a weight of expectations on you as you sat down with that? I did. I mean, when I first, it was in my contract for the Odyssey that if I ever did the Iliad, that Norton would publish it or would consider doing it if the Odyssey had been a success. And I, th I had thought for many years that I would probably need 10 years off, and I would write a different kind of book for a while. I mean, I didn't start off my career as a translator, and I thought maybe I won't just do translations continuously. But then I changed my mind because I thought 
the best training for translating an epic poem is translating an epic poem. I'd just done that. So when will I ever be in a better position to do this than I am now? Um, but certainly, it, I did feel the weight of expectations when I turned to the Iliad, because of course, when I published the Odyssey, no one had heard of me, whereas that's not the case once I published the Iliad. And I knew that there would be a sort of different kind of media reception and different kinds of expectations. And I also felt that the Iliad is... I love both the Homeric epics, but I think the Iliad is even greater. And it's also extremely different. It has a lot in common with the Odyssey and a lot that's extremely different. So I felt the weight also just of the greatness of the poem and can I really live up to it and live up to the emotional and sonic and aesthetic intensity of the Iliad. And it's interesting that you went for uh, the Odyssey first and the, the Iliad as your second project since in the, the world of the story chronologically, the, the Iliad comes first. So why did you decide to start with the Odyssey? I mean, none of that was really my choice. I got asked by the publishers to do the Odyssey first, and you can see why they would want the Odyssey more than the Iliad, because nobody really, I mean, hardly anyone reads the Iliad in ninth grade, whereas a lot of kids, especially in the US, read the Odyssey in translation in ninth grade or first year of college. The World Literature Survey very often starts with the Odyssey. It doesn't usually, I mean, some instructors like to flip it around and start with the Iliad instead. But the Odyssey, in a way, makes more sense as a beginning of a world lit class because Odysseus travels the world, whereas nobody in the Iliad goes anywhere beyond to death. Right now, the sort of cultural consensus is that the Odyssey is like the more human poem, and the Iliad seems to be out of favor. But it, I understand from your introduction that in antiquity, people thought of the Iliad as the great one. So how do you think we came to that sort of switcheroo? I mean, I think in antiquity, people thought they were both pretty great. I mean, there, there are some ancient critics who seem to imply the Iliad is greater. I mean, like in Pseudo-Longinus' On the Sublime, which presents the Iliad as the ultimate sublime or tohupsos. The height of poetry is in the Iliad because it has so much more heroic confrontation with death and so much more divine human interaction in a, com in a more complex way. And also so much more sort of very intense nature imagery. It's so much more of a, in modern terms, it's a much more ecological poem. I mean, I think different later cultures, post-Homeric cultures, have wrestled in different ways with the Odyssey versus the Iliad. A lot of the, the Iliad and the Odyssey both were not really read at all in the quote-unquote Western world for many centuries. Dante hadn't read Homer, but people were reading Virgil for a long time. And I think once Homer started to be read again in the early modern period, there was a lot of anxiety about how violent is the Iliad and how much is it endorsing... Um, whipping you up to want to slaughter lots of people, which on some, on some level, that is what the Iliad does. It makes you feel the glory as well as the terrible pathos and tragedy of war. There has been, you know, in different ways, in different cultural moments, a lot of anxiety about the glorification of violence in the Iliad. I mean, in antiquity, there was a lot of anxiety about both Homeric poems insofar as, you know, Plato bans them from the semi-ideal republic and they stir up all the wrong emotions. They make you sympathize with all the wrong people. The idea that Homeric characters are heroes in a Superman sort of way is a very sort of modern American projection back onto these ancient poems. Whenever I see classicists talking about your work, they get really excited about two things. One is that you're writing in metrical blank verse. And then the second thing that people get really excited about is that your language is very clear and limpid and sort of transparent. And I can see both of those things in the work, but it's sort of fascinating to me that 
they also seem like they should be contradictory in a way. Like you should be writing either poetically or very straightforwardly and plainly rather than both at the same time. So how did you think about maintaining both of those ideas in your head as you translated? And what was important to you about keeping them both present? They were both essential to me because they're both essential, I think, in the original. I mean, both, as I said, the metricality, the original is composed in dactylic hexameter. I use iambic pentameter, though I I experimented for a very long time with trying to use a longer metrical line, but I couldn't make it work so it felt alive in English. And I think iambic pentameter sort of triggers a sense of this is a very traditional poetic form, which is a sort of analogous experience to the experience of dactylic hexameter if you're listening to a poem in archaic Greece. Um, to me, it's a, I mean, we talked a minute ago about preconceptions about Homer. I think there are also so many interesting preconceptions about poetry and the idea that poetry has to be either obscure or flowery or ornate in certain ways. I mean, that doesn't hold up if you read Robert Frost even. Let, I mean, there are plenty of lines of Shakespeare that don't use fancy words. To be or not to be, that is the question. None of that's vocabulary words, and yet it's a metrical and extremely powerful line. So I think it's sort of interesting that people think of that as a paradox, which I think is to do with a a peculiarly sort of contemporary idea of poetry as this very esoteric thing, which of course was not the case for most centuries of people composing and loving poetry. Certainly wasn't the case in antiquity. It wasn't esoteric. It was something that everyone can hear, listen, respond to. Um, and, And Homeric poetry in particular, insofar as, I mean, I guess I've I've done translations of other ancient poetic texts, such as Sophocles, Seneca, Euripides, all of whom I think are in certain ways more difficult than Homer. Homeric syntax is very clear, and yet it's also totally poetic. There's no arguing with the poetic qualities of Homer, who was called Hopoietes, the poet in antiquity. We'll be back with more of my conversation with Emily Wilson after a quick break. Support for The Gray Area comes from Shopify. Imagine an action movie where the hero has to sell 1,000 Barbara Streisand t-shirts in 72 hours to save a major American city. Save the city from what, exactly? That's for audiences to decide. But how would they do it? They've used Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform flexible enough to help your business sell at every stage of growth, whether you're the main character in a tentpole action movie or the real-life CEO of a multinational company. No matter what you're making, Shopify can help you sell it. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system, Shopify offers the flexibility to support your operation. They also offer something called Shopify Magic, an AI-powered helper created to help you stress less and sell more. Try it for yourself. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash box. You can go to shopify.com slash box now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash box. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. 
or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. turn into the text a little bit now and just for those of our listeners who maybe haven't read The Iliad in a while or or haven't had a chance to read it at all, can you set us up and tell us how the poem opens? Uh, the poem opens and so on. Um, <laughs> too long ago, it's going to sound like a party trick, which I don't want to do. Um, the first word is menin for menis, which means wrath. I translate it as wrath rather than anger or rage because the Iliad has a whole spectrum of vocabulary for different kinds of fury that people and gods can feel. The wrath of Achilles is different from mortal human anger. If a man gets mad at another man, what usually happens in the Iliad is that he slaughters a few other men. When Achilles is possessed by this overwhelming wrath against his fellow Greek, Agamemnon, he manages to cause a huge massacre, both on the enemy's side and, very unusually, on his own side. He's acting like a god insofar as he can kill without doing anything. Swift-footed Achilles barely moves for three quarters of the poem. It's interesting to me, when I first read the Iliad as a teenager, I just, I hated Achilles so much. I think I really resented that he acted as though he was the only one in the war whose losses really mattered, right? It starts with him refusing to fight because Agamemnon has taken away his slave girl. And even after Agamemnon offers him this enormous apology with a million backup gifts, he's still refusing to fight. Um, And then one of the things that your translation and introduction did, which I really loved, was it sort of made me reframe this attribute of Achilles into being something very human. This idea that when we're confronted by loss, we just want to say, no, I don't accept any recompense. My loss can never be made whole, which is probably how we all feel when we're faced, especially with the loss of, of human life. So I'm wondering if you can speak to how you see Achilles's obstinacy sort of functioning within this poem and, and what work it does. 
Yes, so Achilles is unlike his fellow Greeks in that he's the son of a goddess as well as of a mortal man. And he's also the swiftest footed and therefore the best at the form of fighting which involves throwing a spear, running in really fast to collect it, throwing another spear to kill another person and so on. Like he, can, he can kill more people in quick succession through his athleticism on the battlefield than any other member of the Greek army can. Um, so he's special, both because he's semi-divine and because he's really good at his job. And yet, he also is wrestling with the fact that he's even a person as special as that is both mortal and vulnerable to all kinds of losses. What happens in that quarrel scene at the, at the start, where, as you say, it hinges on really quite an un unattractive quality of two very privileged men getting very furious because they don't one of them doesn't get to enslave the woman that he'd hoped to be enslaving which doesn't seem like it's we're going to sympathize with either any of them in that kind of context i mean i think if you can get yourself into the mindset of this poem's emotional and social world you can sympathize because achilles he's also unlike his fellow greeks and trojans in that he knows for sure if he stays at troy he will die so he knows that he's trading his life life for honor. So any diminution of his honor means that he's given his life for nothing. And I think you can sort of see from that perspective that it's not surprising that he's upset. He's dying for absolutely nothing. And this is in a way, a quite, even though he's very unlike us in so many ways, most of us aren't sons of goddesses, most of us aren't quick spear warriors. We also will all die. And we also all have that sense of sometimes you lose things that you'll never get back. If you lose your life, you never get it back. As Achilles himself is the one who says most powerfully in Book Nine, when he's insisting that there are some types of things, maybe you can get it back. You might be able to get some horses or some cattle or steal some tripods from somebody, all of which he's great at doing. But you can't get life back once it goes past your teeth. And one of the things that sort of comes out in that argument also seems sort of central to one of the things the poem is grappling with is this question of whether humans can be blamed for the things that the gods make them do, and conversely, if they deserve the credit for their accomplishments if they're helped by the gods. Um, and when I read this poem, I always find it really difficult to wrap my head around that question. I always sort of have this instinct to make the gods' action in some way metaphorical, and then the poem is really fighting me on that. So, for instance, my instinct is always to read Helen of Troy as someone who was metaphorically overcome with lust when she met Paris and was abducted by him. But the text of the poem is like very clear that she was literally the victim of Aphrodite and her influence on her. So how would you recommend modern readers approach the problem of the gods when it comes to understanding the psychology of these characters and, and how they interact with this world where immortal creatures can change fundamental ideas about their, their natures? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, People in antiquity also wrestled with that. I mean, people in late antiquity, especially once there, there were sort of attempts to fuse the Homeric poems, which remained canonical with versions of Neoplatonism and nascent Christianity. The only way to make it work is you have to make the gods metaphorical. And it, it sort of works up to a point. I mean, I think that Helen scene in book three, where Helen doesn't want to go to bed with Paris because she despises him and he's just been humiliated on the battlefield and she doesn't think that's a sexy look. She, and she doesn't doesn't want to go to bed with a man she doesn't respect. And yet, 
I mean, I think most of us have been overcome with lust for people we don't respect. So it's possible to read it metaphorically. And yet the goddess herself seems so uncannily real. And I, as a translator, I thought it's absolutely essential that the reader must believe in the gods and the goddesses and must feel the sense that when the sea looks misty, but then all of a sudden there are 50 sea goddesses emerging from, that, from those waters, you have to believe it. And you have to believe that this really is Poseidon striding over the mountaintop in three strides. And this really is here in her magical chariot and putting on her sexy earrings and her sexy bra that will make Zeus be distracted from the battlefield. You have to believe in the gods. So, I mean, I personally don't have any problem believing in the gods because I think they make sense of the world we live in in certain ways so much better than monotheism does because it's a complicated world out there. And there's so many things happen that no particular single human seems to be in charge of. And if you're sort of trying to make sense of like, how exactly did that person make that decision, which might have been a bit surprising, maybe there were several things going on in their mind at once. Could it have been that a goddess tugged him by his hair? Who knows, maybe. Why did the armies suddenly flee or suddenly get invigorated to fight? I mean, again, I don't think even the greatest military strategist can always explain why did they lose morale at that particular moment or why did that person happened to die when it seemed like he was winning, and yet then the other person won. We have sports betting because you can't always predict things, and I think the gods are a way of saying that we can't always predict things, and also they're a way of saying nature is bigger than us, the world is bigger than us. The forces out there we can't understand. It's like Tolstoy's uh, spirit of history, is the, the chaotic Olympian gods coming down. Absolutely. And yet they also have so much personality. So I, I love that they're both this sort of abstract sense of the world is so much bigger than humans. And yet they're also so detailed in their psychological anxieties and desires and fears and rages and griefs. And that they're in so many ways just like humans, except that they're far more powerful and won't die. more of my conversation with Emily Wilson after one more quick break. Once upon a time in America, there was no such thing as all-you-can-eat shrimp. And then the world changed. Today, shrimp is the most popular, the most consumed seafood in America. The endless shrimp fiesta is an American institution. But that shrimp fiesta comes at a steep price. Here at Gastropod, we found out that hidden behind the delicious shrimp on your plate is environmental disaster and modern-day slavery. So can you have your shrimp and a clear conscience, too? Actually, yes. And we've got the secret to help you unlock true, lifelong shrimp happiness. Listen to the latest episode of Gastropod wherever you get your podcasts. I was so struck by the idea you talk about in your intro that most of the Olympian gods look down on Ares and Aphrodite, who are the gods of war and, and love or sex, because they're the gods of the baser human instinct, especially since arguably the whole poem is set in motion in the first place by lust and by the desire for war. So how did you think about that dynamic between the gods and this sense that Ares and Aphrodite are sort of on a different social and emotional plane as you were approaching the poem? 
I mean, I thought about it in particular with Ares, who I think is the thinnest characterization of all the Olympian deities. I mean, Aphrodite gets more sort of layers to her characterization because she gets to interact with more different other deities. Whereas with Ares, in a way, he's quite similar to his various horrible hench people like conflict and terror and flight who are constantly rushing with him across the battlefield, wanting to slaughter everybody. I see it as, as part of the way the poem is. I said a few minutes ago that people in the early modern period were quite often anxious about the Iliad as a poem that celebrates warfare. But I think the depiction of Ares, the ruin of humanity, as he's often described, the Protoloigos Ares, um, it showcases the way the poem is represents the horror of war and represents that the ways that um, a massacre is only a good thing if you're Ares. And Ares loves bloodshed and, feel, and is always happy if a lot of people get slaughtered. The other gods very often enjoy the battlefield if the right people are dying, but they don't enjoy it if some of their favorites are dying, which... I mean, they, they have a more nuanced vision of war, whereas Ares is just all for it in any context whatsoever. Yeah, I kept having this image of him just sort of crouched on the edge of the battlefield, just like grinning his this giant smile. Yes, the giant bloody smile, yes. And of course, also, he's immortal. And that's also part of how the poem is sort of acknowledging that we'll always have war. There's never been a human society where there hasn't been war and probably there never will be. Yeah, so I want to, on that note, turn to this quote from the end of your introduction. Uh, you wrote, You already know the story. You will die. Everyone you love will die. You will lose them forever. You will be sad and angry. You will weep. You will bargain. You will make demands. You will beg. You will pray. It will make no difference. Nothing you can do will bring them back. You know this. Your knowing changes nothing. This poem will make you understand this unfathomable truth again and again as if for the very first time. How does it do that? It does that in so many different ways. I mean, I think it does that on a macroscopic level by showing you the story arc of Achilles' rage, which gets mutated, his rage against, his, his wrath against Agamemnon, which results in him sitting out of the battlefield, refusing to acknowledge that he could accept a diminution of his honor in exchange for uh, when, he, when he's going to die for his honor. He refuses to accept that loss. And I think that's connected to a, a refusal to accept the death that he knows is soon about to come. Then his friend Patroclus goes out as his second self, and the second self of Achilles is killed. And of course, Achilles is devastated by grief. And on some level, he's accepting that Patroclus is dead, and on another, he's not, because he's saying, he's, he's sort of insisting, I can recoup this loss. If only I can kill the person who killed Patroclus. If only I can obliterate the Trojans. I can keep on killing. And even when Hector is dead, I will keep on humiliating him in front of his parents and his people. And I'll keep on raging and grieving forever, and I will never eat, and I will never stop, and I will never sleep. And the loss will never be recouped, but he won't stop looking for remuneration for that loss, looking for something to make up for it. And the poem's story arc, the story of Achilles' wrath ends when Achilles is able to form a very temporary, very contingent, very, in a way, quite implausible kind of kinship with his greatest enemy, the King of Troy. And they weep together for their losses and they eat together. And so there's a sort of way that that story arc of how Achilles refuses to accept his death or anyone that he loves' death, and yet in the end, all he can do is accept it and eat. And similarly, Hector is sort of in denial about his own death or about the possibility that he will die. He thinks he can make it. He thinks he can keep on pushing on out into the plain, leave his family and save his city. And he doesn't. I want to um, zoom out a little bit now looking at some of the reception of 
these poems. I know there's been some anger on the far right, not really as far as I've been able to see in the academy um, about your translations. I've seen some people call your work woke Homer and claim that you're bringing in a political agenda. It seems like it's part of this larger trend in these kind of crypto-fascist or sometimes outright fascist spaces to want to try to preserve this understanding of Homer as specifically the wellspring of a white, masculine, European idea of heroism and one that they can see themselves as fighting specifically to preserve. So I'm wondering if you can speak to how your understanding of Homer is I would imagine quite different from that. And what political lens, if any, you feel that you are bringing to the work? Yeah, I mean, I find it, I find all that response in which, as you say, it's, there's a whole pocket of the internet that seems to belong to people who love the idea of ancient Greece as a fantasy time when everyone recognized that only white men matter and women didn't matter and didn't get to say anything. And that's why we idolize the ancient Greeks, because they were just as misogynistic and fascistic as we want. Our, our society to be. Um, I personally don't see my work as sort of inherently political, except insofar as the Homeric poems are about people and communities. And I think they're very empathetic about people, communities. I mean, people seems like the wrong word because we're, I'm including deities in, in, that, in that world. And then also we're trying to include the natural world and animals as well. I mean, they're empathetic about what's it like to be a horse on the battlefield? What is it like to be a dog who's hungry for meat? Was it like to be a spear? I mean, I think these are very sort of deeply empathetic works of imagining about what is it like to be a member of a community or to be isolated from a community and how how can communities stick together? How can communities get blown up by various different kinds of speech and rage and action and violence? And so in that sense, I think they are absolutely political. And I think empathy is a political concept, which is a very important one and useful for today's politics. I wish there was more of it and more sense of everyone matters, which I think the Homeric poems teach you. But are they political and they're going to sort of tell you exactly who to vote for? I, I, mean, I don't think it's quite like that. I don't think an ancient poem can have that kind. I mean, I think it, it takes some teasing out and dwelling with the poem too, because it's not just about the point of reading a poem, which will take you many hours to listen to or read, isn't to get a moral that you can write down on a post-it note. It's to go through the whole experience. And that, that is also, I think, a political thing. I mean, I think it's potentially political to say, I wish people would read more and would read complex, difficult texts, which aren't sort of easily summarizable, which is not, uh, not I think, the lesson that the anti-woke people on the internet are taking. Because many of the people who get most enraged about my existence clearly haven't, re haven't, haven't read more than a line or two of my work or none at all. They just know that I'm female and that's more or less all they need to be infuriated. In the introduction, you draw um, a parallel between Troy in its last days and the world that we live in now destabilized by climate change. So if reading the poem is about the whole experience of going through it, do you think there's anything in that experience that can help us see more clearly the world that we are potentially losing right now? I mean, I think, it, I think the Iliad certainly teaches you to value the short-lived, I mean, the word minanthadios, like short-lived, which is applied both to Hector and Achilles, but in a way applies to the whole world, to, applies to the city of Troy, which will be flooded by Poseidon and Apollo after 
the warriors think that they've built monuments through their actions and their de- their glorious deaths that will last forever. The walls that Poseidon and Apollo themselves constructed will be washed away. The Great Achaean Wall about around the encampment will also be washed away. It's a sort of picture of loss and a picture also of how can we appreciate the things that we are losing. How can we learn not to delude ourselves with also with the acknowledgement that we probably will keep on deluding ourselves. I mean, that that desire to think it's not true, that maybe we're going to make it, is also there in the poem and there in, for many of us, that we keep on you know, building on coastlines and um, voting for people who won't necessarily do anything to mitigate climate change. Just to bring it home, I'm going to go to the question you've probably answered quite a few times over the course of this tour, but I'm hoping you can answer it one more time. Homer's poems have survived 3,000 years. Why have they lasted so long? And what is the most important thing for us to get out of them now? Um, they've lasted so long because they have these enormously energetic and sort of deep pictures of these characters who are fascinating, who aren't sort of either evil or amazingly good, but who are um, engaged in these deeply human sort of quests, like the quest to grapple with mortality or to win some kind of glory or lasting name or celebrity. I mean, who doesn't care about those things? Who doesn't care about grief? I mean, the Iliad, and we haven't really talked about the way that the Iliad, it goes on this trajectory from male rage, but ends with female grief and lamentation. I think they're very truthful emotionally, and that's a lot of the reason why they've survived. And they also have great stories. We also haven't mentioned that despite the intensity of the Iliad and the Odyssey as well, to some extent, they also have really funny scenes. And there are comic moments that both the sort of black comedy of the trash talking in the quarrel, but also the more straight up comedy of the seduction of Zeus or the moments when Meriones and Idaeus are measuring their spears against each other. They're just really good stories, I think, is a lot of it. I didn't do the lesson of, lesson of Homer. Part of that could just be that there isn't really a lesson of Homer. There isn't really a lesson. Yes, I mean, people in antiquity also thought Homer is the greatest teacher and Homer was used in the education of children. But the question of what exactly Homer teaches, who knows? I mean, I think there's a, I think Homer teaches you the world is bigger than you think and you will die. And maybe that's enough. Who could argue with both of them? (laughs) Well, thank you very much for coming by and bringing us the truth that we will all die in the end. Yes, thank you. That is Emily Wilson. She has translated Homer's The Iliad out in stores now. Patrick Boyd engineered this episode, Alex Overington wrote our theme music, and A.M. Hall is the boss. Special thanks to Caitlin Boguki. As always, let us know what you think of the episode. Drop us a line at thegrayarea at vox.com. And please share it with your friends on all the socials. Sean will be back next week. New episodes of The Gray Area drop on Mondays. Listen and subscribe. The Gray Area is part of Vox, which doesn't have a paywall. Help us keep Vox free by going to vox.com slash give.